You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. The phrase American exceptionalism has become a commonplace term of concern in American political journalism. Politicians who claim said exceptionalism, so the conventional story goes, are more prone to be militaristic to impose America's will on America's peers and otherwise to misbehave. But when this notion of exception arose, in what sense was America exceptional? Was it always America that was exceptional? And why didn't anyone tell me as a kid that the Pilgrims and the Puritans were entirely different groups? Abram Van Engden's book, A City on a Hill, A History of American Exceptionalism, proposes an answer to some of these questions and the ideas of origin stories, nationalism, history, and rhetoric. And Christian Humanist Profiles is glad to welcome him to the show. Abram, thank you for coming on board. And thank you for having me. I actually had to look over at the book's cover because I, I saw the phrase city upon a hill so many times that I, I thought I'd written the, the book's title wrong. <laughs> yeah, no, it's just city on a hill. Very good, very good. Well, Abram, your book begins with an insight that I've heard before from many historians, namely that origin stories often tell us more about the storyteller than about the characters within the origin story. What are the basic contours of the John Winthrop legend of American origins? Well, for a long time now, we've heard this idea that the United States has been called a city on a hill from its very beginning. Uh, and the way that that phrase works is it, it links back primarily to John Winthrop, who was the first Puritan governor of Massachusetts Bay. Uh, you know, President Reagan did this most famously, but he's, he's not the only one. And really, it's a story that says when Winthrop was on his way here on the ship Arbella, he declared that we shall be as a city upon a hill. And ever since then, America's called to be this model to the world. Uh, we're supposed to model any number of virtues, democracy, freedom, religious liberty, free enterprise, you name it. Uh, the problem with this story, of course, or one of the problems with this story anyway, is that uh, Winthrop's sermon was not actually famous in its own day, and it didn't actually set the tone uh, for his fellow Puritans. It was, in fact, nobody actually knew about it. It wasn't recorded, noted, it wasn't published or publicized, uh, and in fact, it was completely lost and unknown for 200 years. It was found in 1838, and it was it was first published uh, in in the 19th century. So, so it's really the City on a Hill story that he. Winthrop gave us this phrase, and we've been so ever since, is a, is a sort of classic invented foundations tale of the nation. That's, that's a story that is going to take some time to unfold, and eventually we're going to make our way back to the Cold War and beyond. But let's go back for a moment to the 17th century, where this sermon's manuscript originates. Uh, you note some really nice points from the text of the sermon that in Reagan's America might have seemed to some positively un-American. Talk about these themes of economic community from a model of Christian charity. Well, I really loved diving into the 17th century context for all of this and bringing that to the front. So, yeah, for Winthrop, it's abundantly clear in this sermon that communal needs really are more important than private needs or wants. And he's very concerned about people going off uh, in pursuit of their own profit at other people's expense. He thought that would basically ruin the whole enterprise. So really, his sermon is a kind of extensive call to both love and liberality based fundamentally in this idea that community will hang together through sympathy. So uh, he definitely believed that community had its set ranks. He wasn't about social mobility at all. He believed the rich were rich and the poor were poor. Uh, at the same time, the way he defined the rich was basically he said, 
if you've got an income and you can basically take care of yourself, that makes you rich. And now if you're rich, your, your, your responsibility is to take care of everyone else. So basically he said the point of wealth is to share it with others. Uh, and he thought that this would bind everybody together in a stronger sort of emotional, sympathetic uh, community. Very good. You note at several points that the phrase city upon a hill or city on a hill seems to refer in, Win in Winthrop's sermon, to be sure, and really across Puritan literature, not to America as a continent, much less as a nation state, but to the church and more so the Puritans, uh, both English and New English. So in Winthrop's and in the Puritans' outlook on the world, what was at stake in being a city on a hill as Christians rather than as a political entity or a territorial boundary? One of the points I really try to stress in this book is that the Puritans and the Pilgrims too, for that matter, did not see themselves as American exceptionalists. They did not see New England as going to be set apart for this special mission to save the world or something. They really had in mind uh, this call to set up a godly community that would be a model of Christian charity. But they also believed that models of Christian charity existed across the world. So, so it was a call in a certain sense to join all these other models of Christian charity, to join themselves to the true church, which was worldwide, um, to be one candle among many. And so we've basically, if we think about it as a city on a hill rather than the city on a hill, it gets more close to the meaning that they had in mind, which is that uh, basically they did believe that God called all Christians, true Christians, uh, to model sort of the life of Christ, um, a way of charity and so forth. And they took that call upon themselves, just like any Christian community anywhere in the world should be called to that goal. So, uh, so they were not exceptionalist in that sense. Uh, they, they really did believe they wanted to join the worldwide church. So in their literature, I mean, did they make specific reference to French Huguenots or to uh, Geneva or to other uh, Protestant communities? And by the way, pardon my pronunciation throughout this episode, I, I never did take French, but or were, oh, there, <laughs> or were there references, I mean, more abstract to the global church? There were, there were references, City on a Hill was used pretty broadly, but um, to refer to various places. So for example, at one point, Colchester is, is called a city on a hill. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, even in the sermon, Winthrop gives the Waldensians were, were held up as a model. Uh, and then of course he talks about biblical models, the Macedonians and so on. So he says, look, this kind of thing has been going on through history where Christian communities are called to set up uh, models of Christian charity, and we are going to be another one like those. Very good. Well, it's interesting, this phrase from Matthew's gospel, city on a hill or city upon a hill, um, you do some good work to situate the way that Puritans use this phrase, and one of the moves that you make is to show that Jesuits were at the same time using this phrase in their own literature. How did their use of city on a hill differ from what Winthrop was doing? So, one of the things I did in this book was uh, a kind of extensive archival search for the word uh, the word city on a hill. And in the 17th century, what I found that was kind of surprising to me at first uh, was that it was really Catholics who loved this verse. Uh, it's, of course, from the Sermon on the Mount. It's from Matthew 5.14. And it was Catholics who looked to that verse and said, this is the verse that proves that Roman Catholicism is true and Protestantism is false. Uh, and they said, look, uh, 
Jesus said all of his followers would be set as a city upon a hill. Uh, look around you. What's, what's the only church that has been set as a city upon a hill since the time uh, Christ spoke? The only one visible uh, since the time of Christ to the present day is, is the Roman Catholic Church. And so they said, this is, this is the verse that proves that we're the true church. And so Protestants actually get put on the defensive when it comes to this verse. And, and they say funny things like I, I found some folks, some Protestants say, well, look, every hill is, you know, sometimes hidden by mists. So you can't really see what's on top of it. So sometimes the true church is hidden. Um, but, but they really kind of struggled with what to do with that verse since Catholics so often claimed it for their own. Uh, and what they, one of the things they did was they, they turned to other verses to describe the true church. So they turned to um, Luke 12, 32, for example, which they said, look, the true church is often described as a small flock. Uh, and they turned to Revelations 12. They said, look, it's going to hide in the wilderness. That's, that's Protestantism. The true church goes away. You can't see it for a while. Um, and so uh, one other thing, they, they compared it to the moon quite frequently. They said, look, the, we know the moon is there even when we can't see it. Uh, and that's the true church. Uh, and that was the true church for the last thousand years before Martin Luther. So they had to kind of come up with ways of getting around this phrase, city on a hill, which is all the more surprising that, that um, Winthrop would, would use it in his sermon at all. Right, right. I, yeah, I mean, the, the interpretive move there is fascinating. Unfortunately, we can't dwell there because this is a book that, uh, that covers centuries. When you move to the earliest attempts to craft a specifically American history, you explore two very different approaches to preserving the past and its documents. One approach puts original copies in the safest possible place and guards them against all peril. Uh, you can think of perhaps the Dead Sea Scrolls here. The other makes copies of them so that if some of them go, the rest still remain. So talk about some of the early American attempts to preserve a history through copying. Yeah, in this project, I got really interested in the formation of American historical societies and the incredible impact they had on the way we, we talk about American history, even the way we can do American history. These are societies that have preserved uh, many of the records that we still use to write American history, but the choices that they made about what to preserve and why to preserve that has really shaped uh, our, our sort of historical narratives. And of course, one of the texts that they preserved, that they discovered, in fact, that they published, uh, was Winthrop City on Hill Sermon. So that's where this fits into the book. I wanted to know what actually caused these historical societies to exist, to preserve this sermon, to bring it in, into the national narrative. Uh, in my book, I talk about two really uh, interesting characters. Jeremy Belknap was one. He was a, a liberal um, Calvinist minister in Boston, and Ebenezer Hazard which is just a great name, was, is another. And they had really different notions of how to preserve the records of the nation's past. Um, Belknap, he went around sort of collecting all that he could and trying to house it in a, in a, in a safe place. He said, if all this stuff uh, is in people's gentlemen's attics, it'll, it'll all get lost before we even know that it's there. Um, Hazard's approach was to copy everything. He said, we need to copy everything and distribute it so that if one copy gets lost or a building burns down or whatever, uh, then the copies will still remain. And when they came together, they used both strategies. So the Massachusetts Historical Society is the first of these. It's founded in 1791. It is a giant repository, but it also began a series of publications called the Collections of the Massachusetts Historical Society to send out some of this material uh, into the nation. And that's the series in which 
the City on a Hill sermon first ever appears in 1838. Hmm. You mentioned in passing there that uh, the Belknap was a, a Calvinist, a Presbyterian. Um, how does that progressive Calvinism uh, shape the enterprise of collecting and publishing American history? What purpose does it lend to history? The religious background of Belknap and Hazard and another guy I talk about, John Pintard, who was behind the New York Historical Society, they all basically grew up as Calvinists and they all became in some way, shape or form, uh, basically liberal progressive versions of Calvinists by the end of their lives. Um, but that Calvinism that they grew up with really shaped their approach to history because they believed that by studying history, they were basically studying the sovereignty of God. Uh, and they thought that by learning about history, they would basically be learning about God and God's ways. Um, so in that sense, the piety that they had really shaped their pursuit of history. And also they believed that God had set the world to work in certain patterns, um, certain laws, certain fundamental uh, shape to the world. And so just like science can discover those laws, so they thought history can discover those laws and those patterns as well. And that would teach them about God and how God wanted the world to work. So if they could figure out these patterns in history and these laws to history, uh, they could get closer to the will of God and use that will of God to build basically a better society. Now, this is not a question that I that I prepped you for, but it just now occurred to me. On would ha would uh, Hazard and Belknap have considered history a a Wissenschaft in the sort of German sense of a history, or would they have considered it a different kind of enterprise? Uh, no, I think more yeah, more of the former. I mean, they really did try to think of it in, in you know, scientific terms insofar as um, that was a distinguishing category <laughs> in the late 1700s. But they, they did think that they're, you know, basically all societies have their history. To study all of them is to study what works and what doesn't. And as history reveals what works, we can all do what works and basically uh, correct the problems of history. So they were very interested in the errors of history, uh, where societies went astray, uh, and they really thought that basically by a study of history, you could come up with the solutions and build a better world. Uh, and so they they really believed that there was a kind of science to it that would reveal all the answers. And of course, how this plays into the book is that they were motivated, all of that sort of motivated by a kind of deep inner American exceptionalism. They thought that America had basically advanced beyond all other societies. And so they wanted to study their own history as a, as a model to give to other societies to do the same. Very good. And one more follow-up that, again, just occurred to me. Uh, you know, this project seems very Machiavellian. I mean, Machiavelli famously said that we study history so that we can, you know, increase our own uh, strength by, by virtue of it. Uh, would they have been exposed to Machiavelli? And if they had, would they admit to it? <laughs> That's an interesting question. I mean, I'm guessing that they knew. Uh, but uh, I did not come across his name. I read through all their papers. Their papers are amazing. They have uh, volumes and volumes of letters between these two. They were friends for 20 years, and there's about 1,500 pages now of printed letters at the Massachusetts Historical Society between the two of them. And I read them all, uh, and I did not come across uh, Machiavelli's name, but, uh, but I, I'm sure they would have been familiar, yeah, with that idea. Fair enough, fair enough. The way these uh, early New England historians tell their story, 
America begins with English-speaking Puritans and stands empty before those English-speaking Puritans arrive. But even Jeremy Belknap has to confront the presence and persistence of human beings who were here when the Englishmen got here. So how does Belknap deal with these predecessor peoples, specifically those who lived in New England before it became New England? Yeah, the, the more Jeremy Belknap celebrated America as the rise of liberty, basically the less, less tolerance he had for those who had been here before. Uh, he basically just didn't know what to do with them in the end. Um, it's interesting because he starts his career with a certain kind of sympathy for Native Americans, and he wants to be a missionary, and, he, and he, some of his early histories of New Hampshire and so on really um, lay out white settler violence and blame uh, white colonists as much as Native Americans for the violence that ensued. Uh, but by late in his career, the more he sort of invests in a kind of narrative of America as the rise of liberty, as the progress of liberty, he basically doesn't understand, he doesn't know how to fit Native Americans into the story. So he really does three things to try to get them out of the story. Uh, one is that he spends an enormous amount of effort trying to figure out when Native Americans first appeared in America. Uh, and he really wants to try to demonstrate that they didn't appear until recently. So he does not want to give them an ancient past in America. So they only came recently. Another thing he does is that he, he, he argues that basically they're going to disappear soon. Uh, so they came recently and they'll disappear soon. But the last thing he does, which is the thing that really kind of uh, takes off and lots of other people do as well, is he starts to rewrite them as basically part of the wilderness setting they're just part of the backdrop. They, they were there. They're sort of like um, the stage uh, that is just set uh, for the story which begins when Europeans arrive in America. And so in his most famous book is called The Foresters. He really um, literally describes them uh, basically as wolves, as, as bears, as, as animals, uh, like all the other animals in the wilderness that are just there, part of the wilderness, before basically human beings arrive and the story begins. Hmm. That's both terrifying and fascinating. Another recurring feature of your account of America and of American history is the innovation that happens when maps become prominent in history textbooks. And I really found this passage interesting. Uh, what differences in historical imagination, in nationalist imagination, what differences emerge as a result of those maps and the imagination that they shape. So, so one thing that happens right away after uh, the sort of American Revolution, they've, they've got to come up with a national identity. Uh, you know, there's 13 colonies, they didn't necessarily have a lot to do with each other before, and now suddenly they're one nation. So what is it that makes you uh, feel like you are primarily American as opposed to Virginian? Uh, what makes you feel like you're a citizen that has anything to do uh, with another colony elsewhere. And they come up with various strategies to make a, a national identity kind of salient. And one is maps. Uh, and so one thing they do is they draw a border around the 13 colonies and they say they, to picture them as one nation. And they start to put that map all over the place, uh, taverns, teacups, whatever. Uh, they, they, they put it everywhere so that you can see yourself as one nation again and again. Um, the other thing that happens a little bit later is the rise of national history textbooks. So once you have a nation, you need a national history. Uh, and these really take off in the 1820s. And one of the prominent um, 
writers of these who I, I sort of tell her story in the book, I think she's incredibly fascinating, hugely influential and largely forgotten is uh, Emma Willard. And what Emma Willard does is she basically brings geography and maps to history textbooks and does the, the both of them together. So she tells her history through the use of maps. Um, and, and basically that method takes off. So really our history textbooks today still owe themselves to her innovation of them uh, in the 1820s. She sold over a million textbooks in her lifetime. Um, one quick thing about the, the problem with that approach is that, uh, you know, these maps could could basically put in place a very troubling national narrative as well. So just as Belknap really treated Native Americans as part of the sort of void, primordial void of the wilderness uh, before the story begins, Willard actually did that quite specifically in the maps. So in 1828, she publishes a series of maps to go with her history textbooks. The first map in that series is called Introductory. And this is the map where Native Americans appear and she shows where they live and so on. But it's the introductory map, it's the stage setting map. Then the next map, which is really the second in the series, she actually literally calls the first map of American history. And that's the map when Europeans begin to arrive. Uh, and so this is the way that American exceptionalism has often treated Native Americans. It really has an ongoing and impossible problem when it, backs up the story to include Native Americans as human beings with their own history and culture. It really it doesn't know what to do with Native Americans, and so it often just writes them out of the story. And, and one other interesting uh, disappearance and reemergence story uh, is Benedict Arnold. Can you talk for just a moment how Benedict Arnold uh, got forgotten and then reemerged as part of the, the standard story of America? Benedict Arnold. Um, uh, the sort of traitor story. Yeah, yeah. Because I'm, I, if I remember what you wrote right, uh, I mean, no one really talked about him for decades until one of these historical societies discovered him in the documents, and then he got written into these textbooks. Do I talk about Benedict Arnold? I felt like you did, but I, that, that's all right. You have, listeners, go read the book. You can decide whether I'm making that up or not. <laughs> I'm not sure that that... I'm like I said, sure I, I read that, that and I found that fascinating. So I, <laughs> but we it's can been move a while on. since we I read the book. <laughs> Let's talk about the, the rise of the Plymouth Rock Landing as a central myth. Because you talk about the 200th anniversary of the... Plymouth Rock Landing, and among the details that, that stood out to me is one, uh, there's almost no mention of the, the founding of Boston. Uh, you know, there's a speech where Daniel Webster, uh, and I'll use your phrase, quote, nationalize the pilgrims, unquote. Um, it seems like, I mean, you know, for reasons that you're about to explain to us, all of a sudden the pilgrims supplant the Puritans uh, as the ones who are, you know, the, the, the head of this American uh, origin story. So what vision of America did Webster articulate at that anniversary celebration? And how typical or how idiosyncratic was that celebration? Yeah, I, I, so the pilgrims were in New England for a long time, uh, beginning in the late 1700s, but they really weren't a kind of national origin story. I mean, if you're in Virginia, what do you care about the pilgrims? 
Um, when Webster speaks at the 200th anniversary in 1820, this speech goes national, and it goes national in two ways. One is the speech itself gets distributed widely and praised uh, widely. The other thing that happens is right again at the cusp of the writing of national history textbooks. And so what Webster says about the pilgrims actually gets incorporated into many of the first national history textbooks of the nation. And basically what he says is that we owe our beginnings to the pilgrims and that, um, and, and he gives a kind of expansive vision of America that's gonna extend from Plymouth Rock to the Pacific Ocean. Uh, I mean, one of the things that's interesting about that talk is that Webster was a very good Whig. Uh, and as Whigs, as a Whig, he, he and, and his party opposed a good deal of American expansion. They, they resisted Indian removal policies. They opposed the Mexican-American War and so on. Uh, but what they did approve and they did sort of preach, and this is one of those speeches that does it, is a sense of moral expansion. And this is really the way the pilgrims have functioned in these national uh, stories. If you think about it, the pilgrims don't make any sense as an origin because they came here pretty late. I mean, Jamestown was before them, if you want to look for an English settlement. Of course, Native Americans were, were before all that. Uh, you've got Dutch, you've got Spanish, you've got all these other uh, possible origin stories that are all before the pilgrims get here. Um, and so why does the pilgrims get chosen as a kind of origin story? Well, as Webster does and many others after him, they can be used to serve a kind of moral purpose. The pilgrims found us as a, um, as a moral place, a place that seeks God and goodness and freedom and liberty and all these other things. And if you tell that story and make that your identity, then you want that thing to expand. Uh, and so America, if, if America is the outgrowth of Plymouth, Plymouth Rock, then it does need to keep expanding itself to the Pacific Ocean because you're portraying it as a moral uh, ideal. And is this about the time when the Pilgrims and the Puritans start to get conflated? Because in your introduction, I mean, you make the, the very valid point that the Pilgrims were separatists. They, they were no longer subjects of the crown. And yet the, the Boston colony uh, was, you know, a royal charter. So, I mean, you know, by this point, by 1820, uh, were those details just not uh, on anyone's minds? They do start to get conflated. And the, the way that they get conflated is that the Puritans become an, uh, a, a kind of expansion of the pilgrims. Um, and, uh, and, and so the pilgrim Puritan origin becomes just one giant thing. What's so interesting to me about that is that by the time Reagan is talking, they have become so blurred that he can basically call John Winthrop, who came here, you know, in 1630, 10 years after the pilgrim arrival, a pilgrim. He calls him an early pilgrim. And he, in fact, he even gets called on it. You know, people write into him and say, you know, he wasn't a pilgrim exactly. He was a Puritan. Uh, and Reagan so wants him to be a pilgrim that, in fact, there's a letter that that he wrote um, that says, well, I know, I know that. But he's a pilgrim like all the pilgrims who travel. Uh, but he basically, he needs to keep calling him a pilgrim because he needs him to be part of the origin story. And if the origin story is about pilgrims and Winthrop isn't a pilgrim, he can't be part of the, the origin story. And so, so Reagan, by calling him intentionally a pilgrim uh, all, in all of his speeches, He's allowed, he, he basically enables himself to blend the city on a hill imagery with Plymouth Rock imagery to make it all one origin. Very good. There's a figure who I, I really only met for the first time in this book, and I'm probably going to mispronounce his name as well, but William Appus uh, prefigures a shift in attitudes towards the Puritans. 
And part of that shift has to do with his family background. So what is the, the core of his call for a break from the Puritans? Uh, William Avis is a really important figure in the, in the early 1800s. He becomes um, an important uh, Native American activist, uh, writer, thinker, um, and he is a Pequot Indian and he's a Methodist minister. And really it's, it's in part his um, status as a Methodist minister that also gives him uh, literally a pulpit and also a lectern. Uh, and, and a place from which he can be heard. And in 1836, he delivers this really remarkable address uh, called Eulogy on King Philip uh, at, at the Main Theater in Boston. And there he sort of takes on the rising myth of the pilgrims that's really, that's really taking a lot of force at this point. Uh, the pilgrims are becoming known as the great moral beginning of America. And this, is, this, this, this sort of nationalized moral version of the pilgrims is spreading rapidly. And he basically says, uh, he, he re rewrites it to be the opposite, basically. He says, the pilgrims, let me tell you about the pilgrims. The pilgrims, he says, were basically malicious settler colonialists uh, that were no different than Spanish conquistadors. They were intent on taking land. They killed everyone who stood in their way, and they did it all in the name of religion. Uh, and really what he's doing there is he's breaking down one of the sort of exceptionalist narratives uh, that he saw at the heart of this. So the reason the pilgrims get uh, positioned the, the way that they do is they get written as, in the myths, as a great exception to every other traveler to America. So every other traveler to America came for greedy ends, they came for land, they came for gold. These people came for liberty, they came for God, and therefore these people are the origins of America. And he says, no, look, they came for land too, they came to get rich too. Uh, he says they came for no other, no different reason than anyone else came. And so he's trying to break them down as an exception. And, and what he does is he says, we're not going to make any progress in America um, by going back to them, by revering them, by saying we have to ha hang tight to them or hold true to them. He says the only progress that we can make in America is if we go back, revisit our history and mourn it and bury it. That's the only way that we can make uh, move forward. So it's a really different vision to make progress in America. So it's fascinating. I mean, here in the early 19th century, we've got Daniel Webster's vision of a moral expansionism. We've got William Apis uh, calling for a repentance from the Puritans. Uh, and then we've got uh, James Savage, who's another character that I, that I just met in this book. And man, is he a weird one. So on yes, one he hand... Is. He seems capable of criticizing the Puritans for failing to live up to their own aspirations. On the other hand, he makes this bizarre claim that unlike the people actually in England, uh, the people in New England, our people, are 98% pure Anglo-Saxon. So as, as I asked about Webster, now about Savage, to what extent is he a fringe figure and to what extent is he representative of a larger concern with genealogy there in the 19th century? Genealogy really takes off in the 19th century. And, and one of the reasons it takes off is because um, partly from this myth that freedom is bound to Anglo-Saxon blood. I mean, so this, this, there's this story that gets told uh, that, that the Anglo-Saxons, which then give rise to the Puritans, which then gives rise to New England, that basically in that Puritan stock is a desire for freedom and for liberty. And so the ideas go with the blood. And so there, there becomes a widespread search for people to kind of link themselves back to their Puritan ancestors, to find their first um, 
ancestor, their, the origin of their own Puritan stock, uh, and so on. I, I mean, there's no such thing as a famous genealogist, probably. <laughs> right. But James Savage comes about as close as one can come in the 1800s. Uh, and he was motivated by this sense of Puritan stock, as were many. Uh, this idea that they're going to find um, their commitment to liberty in their blood. Uh, and so he really insists that the re what sets New England apart from the rest of the world, and even from England, is that it's basically more English, more Anglo-Saxon than England itself. The reason England fell, he said, is because it got uh, mixed up with all these other, basically, races that came into it. Uh, but New England was, was far purer than all that at the time of the American Revolution, which is why it was far more committed to liberty. And, and I've got a follow-up question on this. I mean, this seems like a different kind of intellectual event than what you see, I mean, for instance, in, in Shakespeare's character, Aaron the Moor, or, you know, the, the suspicions of people of African background in the, you know, 16th, 17th centuries. I mean, is this a, a mutation of racism that's significant enough to call it a different thing? Or is, it, is there more continuity than I'm sensing here? I mean, I think there's continuity, but it is, a, it is a mutation of a sort in the sense that you're now building myths around a long, ancient Anglo-Saxon history. Uh, so they really bring this back to the Teutons, you know, and the German forests, uh, who then give rise to the Anglo-Saxons, who then give rise to the Puritans. Uh, and, you know, it, it's, it is, you know, most certainly racist. But what's interesting about this uh, incredible racism is that it is also this, this sort of sense of moral superiority. So one of the things that makes it a kind of morally superior race is that it wants to uplift other races. So <laughs> it is a weird combination of things, because on the one hand, I say you, we've got to stay pure in order to stay free. On the other hand, uh, our mission is to bring that freedom to all these other races and uplift them. So, you know, Savage was against slavery, um, and, uh, and, and many of these folks were uh, who had this view, uh, but it was based in a kind of moral superiority of their own race, which could demonstrate itself by being against slavery and bringing freedom to all these other races. All right. I am going to zip past the uh, late 19th century and, and really the first part of the 20th century. Uh, our readers can uh, pick up your, our listeners rather, can pick up your book and uh, fill in these gaps. But I, I want to hear you talk about Perry Miller. Uh, this is a story that we really must tell before we close out here. What does this atheist professor have to say about the Puritan origins of America? And what's his particular role in the prominence of Winthrop's sermon in, in specifically? Perry Miller is fascinating. Uh, and writing about Perry Miller was probably my favorite part of, the, of doing this book, those two chapters on, on and reading his papers and, and so forth. Uh, he was a sort of colossal uh, figure at Harvard for the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. Uh, he died in 1963. Um, and he really rewrote, um, he, he's basically the founder of modern studies of the Puritans. Um, and what he did that was so interesting, so one of the things that has to be understood is exactly how the Pilgrims and Puritans were squared off against each other. So lots of people love to celebrate the Pilgrims and then blame everything that went wrong on the Puritans. And basically he flipped the script. 
uh, and so in the 1930s, he said, look, the pilgrims were just this sort of ragtag bunch that washed up on shore and had no purpose and no point and basically got folded in to the larger Massachusetts Bay uh, colony eventually and disappeared. Uh, he said the Puritans were the real deal. Uh, and for him, so, so that's why the coming in 1630 of John Winthrop really mattered for him and really became the origin for him. And basically, he's the one who brought this sermon, this City on a Hill sermon, into national prominence and made it a kind of canonical text. He said, this is re the real origin. Forget the Mayflower Compact. Forget the Plymouth Rock business. This City on a Hill sermon is the real origin of America. And what he wanted was a narrative of America that began with the Puritans because he saw in them a deeply communal and intellectual enterprise. Uh, and his sort of version of America is a great decline from that. And so he's looking around himself in the 1950s and he says, look, we're basically just a business culture now. It's a materialistic business culture. The main aim of most Americans is to get more goods and buy more things. And he says, this is basically a decadent empire and we're, we're, we're on our way down. Uh, we can't last much longer this way. And so he thought of a return to the Puritans as a way to fight against individualism and materialism in American culture and return to a kind of intellectual culture, the kind of culture that founded Harvard, which is where he, of course, was a professor. Um, his attempt to hold all of this together in one giant narrative of America really ended up um, sort of consuming him by the end of his life. And, and um, he really basically sort of died in alcoholic despair by himself uh, in a Harvard dorm room, which is where he was living by the end of his life. So mm. it's a kind of tragic figure. Uh, it's a figure who does in many ways tell a kind of American exceptionalist tale, but it's also a tale of American exceptionalism that you wouldn't expect. It's one that's based primarily in a kind of critique of what America had become. Yeah, and, and the Puritans are used almost as a kind of allegorical figure. I mean, the, the content of their Protestant dogma really doesn't concern him as much as the fact that they wrote so much commentary on that dogma. Yeah, that's right. I mean, what he was interested in was... So basically, one of the things he did was with the theology, he, I, obviously he wasn't committed to the theology himself, he was an atheist, but he loved the theology as an expression of basically deep thinking that mm -hmm. tried to make sense of the world in the most intellectually rich way possible in the 1600s. And he said, we do the same thing now. And so he, he said, you think that, um, say, the determinism of predestination is bizarre. Well, we've got our own determinisms in science. It's no different than that. Uh, and and he, he basically tried to keep doing uh, a translation of their theology into the present day to treat it as a kind of artistic philosophy uh, and way of life and to basically teach it as still relevant because of its attempt to grapple with the deep things of life. And at this point, I'm, I'm doubting my own memory, but <laughs> I, if, if I remember right, uh, you said that uh, President Kennedy was the first American president to cite Winthrop's That's right. speech. Uh, yeah. Would, would uh, Miller have heard that? Um, yes. Uh, yeah, M Miller would have known about that. I mean, so, so um, really what um, ended Perry Miller's life was the death of, of JFK. Um, and of course, we're, there's, there's a lot of speculation about the link between Miller's 
sort of focus on the City on the Hill sermon and JFK's use of it, because of course JFK was a, a Harvard student, um, but no specific link can really be found there. Okay. Uh, but JFK is the first president to use it in 1961 uh, in January when he's leaving for the White House. Uh, and when JFK is, is uh, killed, uh, basically Perry Miller had invested most of his hopes for the nation in JFK. And for two weeks after JFK is killed, Perry Miller basically is in an alcoholic stupor uh, and he's trying to teach uh, while blindly drunk. Um, and eventually he has a, some kind of stroke or something uh, and, um, and they, they take him out of the class. And then he, he comes back, he seems fine. Uh, and then eventually he, he ends up basically drinking himself to death one night, about three weeks after JFK dies. Mm. Um, so that's the end of, of Miller's life is, is um, related to JFK's. And, I, and I've got one more follow-up question. It's about another Miller. Uh, is there any evidence, and this, the, this is purely you know, a speculation that occurred to me as we rolled along here, is there any evidence that Arthur Miller was in any way responding to Perry Miller with the crucible? You know, I don't, that's an interesting question. I'm not quite sure. I, you know, by the time that Arthur Miller is writing, Perry Miller's works had become uh, hugely influential in academic circles, but he was, Perry Miller spent all of his life trying to reach to a broader audience and sometimes he did and sometimes he didn't. Mm -hmm. um, but the Puritans still had such a long tradition of being used in American culture towards the kind of ends that Arthur Miller uses them that I don't think he would have needed Miller to do that. Uh, okay, so in other words, it, it wasn't a, you know, don't you dare try to rehabilitate, rehabilitate these Puritans, I'll show you what they're really like. Right, I mean, there, there were, I mean, one of the things I trace in my books is the different, very different versions of celebration and condemnation that develop in the early, 19, uh, early 1900s. These, these traditions, one tradition basically saying everything that's good about America comes from the Pilgrims and the Puritans. And another tradition at the very same time saying everything that's wrong with America comes from the Puritans uh, and we need to escape from that past that we began in. Uh, you know, H.L. Mencken, Van White Brooks and others mm -hmm. are, are sort of, uh, spreading that version as well of, of um, a sort of condemnation story. What's interesting, of course, about both of those stories is that they don't see a way around thinking of the Pilgrims and Puritans as the origin of America. Whether it's the origin of all things good or the origins of all things bad, they just, the origin story is so deeply embedded by that point that they can't even look elsewhere to begin the story. Hmm. Well, another recent academic who, who again, treats the, the Puritans as an origin is Sack von Berkovich, who examined American rhetoric in terms of Puritan aspirations and the Jeremiads that Americans call out when America doesn't live up to those aspirations. And when I read this chapter, it seemed so familiar. I feel like national politics my entire life has been a series of Jeremiads. Yeah. But you do have your critiques. So what does Berkovich get right and what does Berkovich get wrong? Yeah, I, I love Berkovich in many ways. I mean, I think one of the things Berkovich gets right, and that's still incredibly relevant, is his basic analysis of the way the rhetoric of the American Jeremiah works. So this is what he says about how it works. Uh, he says, what Americans love to do is point out how other Americans are not doing well or not doing the right thing or falling short. And he says, the way that they get critiqued is for being un-American. And when they do that, basically, what they're saying is that American values are the solution to American problems. 
And so those values, whatever they might be for any given speaker, are treated as the truly American thing, while the problems, even if they're being caused by fellow Americans, are treated as not really American after all. Uh, if you were truly American, you wouldn't be doing that thing. Uh, and so it's, it's basically a way of sanctifying the nation as the solution to its own problems. So basically the, the way to restore America is to return to America, to return to American values. Um, and so it becomes a sort of scripture of itself. Um, the solution to every problem is America, go back to being American. Um, and I think that that's pretty accurate. I mean, I see this a great deal. Um, you don't get your values from somewhere else, some other place. You've got to get your values from, say, the American founding itself. And then you can fight about what those values are, but that's the solution, whatever the problem is. Um, what I don't uh, think he got right is that he, the way that he traced this all the way back to the Puritans. He said the Puritans basically began this tradition. Uh, they were the first ones to sanctify America. They were the first ones to make it a sacred place. Uh, and we've never been the same since. They've affected all the rhetoric we've ever had. Uh, <clears throat> and basically, they thought of America as the place where the new millennium was going to begin. And I think basically his account of the Puritans is all wrong. <laughs> I mean, they didn't, they didn't see America that way. They didn't sacralize it the way he says. I think that what he does there is actually pulls off of um, traditions that had developed about the Pilgrims and Puritans, uh, but not what the Pilgrims and Puritans actually said about themselves or actually thought about America. Uh, and so I think that in many ways, uh, he got the Puritans wrong, um, but he did exemplify the role that they have uh, come to play in American culture. Well, your book finishes with another rhetorical exploration, namely the shift from city on a hill rhetoric, which pretty much required DNC and GOP politicians for 50 years to... Uh, make some kind of reference to Winthrop, and then the America First rhetoric, which abandons the moral aspirations of America's manifest destiny in favor of a kind of moral unexceptionalism for America. Do you see your exploration of Trumpist rhetorical changes as harmonizing with Ross Douthat's warning that a post-religious right is much nastier than the religious right ever was, or are you doing some other kind of work in this part of the book? Yeah, I'm not sure exactly whether it fits or not without its analysis, but but I will say this. I, I do think that um, it's good to have a call to certain kinds of virtues like democracy, liberty, tolerance, and so forth. I think that that, that needs to be part of our rhetoric. Uh, it's good to be called to these noble ends. Uh, the problem is more about the narrative of American history that gets written around those virtues uh, to, to suggest that we have always been committed to them or that they're really uh, deeply embedded in us and that if we just return to who we are, we'll, we'll, we'll achieve those ends. Uh, because those kinds of narratives often ignore or erase or downplay uh, so many people and so many um, things that have gone wrong, to say the least, so much of the culture and history of this nation. But at least the values are there. And I mean, I will say that about American exceptionalism, at least the values are talked about. They want to be there, even if the historical narratives that get written are sort of fictionalized. Um, America first, as I read it, as I see it, um, and I studied a lot of Trump's uh, speeches to write the, the last chapter of this book, as far as I could tell, he basically does not talk about those virtues. He does not use those words. He doesn't seem to have any interest in telling any kind of history. 
Uh, and basically, the rhetoric is all about a call to be great, which is often defined really as being rich, or at least richer than other countries, having the best airports and so forth. So um, in my book, when I look through his speeches, the key words that I find repeated again and again are not words like democracy or tolerance or asylum, which was a big word in, in, in American exceptionalist narratives, asylum and refugees and so forth. Um, but really, the, the two key words are sovereignty and self-interest. And he's very explicit about those two things. Uh, and what's interesting is that he says that that makes America no different than any other country. Every country's interest is sovereignty and self-interest. Um, and we're basically all locked in a competition to be, uh, that, that puts us all in the same plane. And some people win and some people lose and let's be the winners. So my book really ends by explaining just how different the rhetoric of America First is from the rhetoric of American exceptionalism and what a radical shift we've seen and really how the phrase city on a hill marks a kind of incredible dividing line between one type of conservative and another. Well, and, you know, what's fascinating is that the folks who, you know, for instance, during the Reagan and George W. Bush years were the most uh, concerned, I'll, I'll try to put it neutrally, about, you know, American exceptionalist rhetoric, uh, I mean, tend to be the ones, and again, I think I read this in your book, uh, that are most concerned about America's remaining exceptional in a moral plane. Yeah, I mean, the shift... Uh to embracing American exceptionalism has now really turned uh, to the left. Uh, so this happens, starts to happen under Obama, who says, you know, I affirm American exceptionalism with every fiber of my being. Hillary Clinton gives a big um, speech on her affirmation of American exceptionalism. Um, and, and the city on a hill during the 2016 campaign. So we read, we, we, we did a, a kind of, for that term and we tracked it and we read 1100 articles and blogs um, and other postings that use that phrase. And the vast majority of the time that that phrase appeared in the 2016 election, it was used against Donald Trump, not for him. Um, and so it basically calls to, to be a city on a hill were calls to defeat Donald Trump. Um, and so, you know, it's a really interesting shift of that rhetoric that we have been seeing where the key phrase of Reagan's career is really now more embraced uh, by I won't say necessarily just by the left because it's really the never Trumpers as well. It's, it's basically by the anti-Trump crowd um, has now embraced the rhetoric of city on a hill and some of the narratives of American exceptionalism. Very good. Well, Abram, I have been at the wheel for most of this conversation. So in the spirit of hospitality, I want you to have the last word. What about American history, John Winthrop, or anything else do you want our listeners thinking about as we head towards the door? <laughs> Um, yeah, you know what, maybe just the simplest of thoughts to end on, which is that what makes history so interesting and fascinating to me is the way that we, we make sense of it by telling a story. And a story, of course, has a beginning. It also has an end, and, an, and the end is often determined by the beginning, or we, the beginning shows us where we're headed. But we've got to begin somewhere. Um, that's how we tell a story. And yet, of course, history itself is so complex and so multivarious that that it has no specific beginning or no specific origin so how do you wrestle with this tension between wanting to say tell a story of the nation which has to begin somewhere 
and incorporating all the many different peoples and cultures and possible origins of everything into that story. It's not easy, right? Uh, but it is a kind of um, a way to sort of open up all the ways to explore all the many different cultures. Uh, you know, we have this phrase now, the vast early America uh, that existed, at, rather than trying to pin down who we are today by one given origin in the past. Abram Van Ingen, thank you for coming on Christian Humanist Profiles. Thank you so much for having me. Listeners, thank you for downloading and for listening in. The book is City on a Hill, A History of American Exceptionalism from Yale University Press. The Christian Humanist Profiles is a part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. And I'm Nathan Gilmore saying, go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord.